Chapters 1 and 2 of The Angel of Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Angel of Terror by Edgar Wallace. Chapter 1. The hush of the court, which had been broken when the foreman of the jury returned their verdict, was intensified as the judge, with a quick glance over his pince-nez at the tall prisoner, marshaled his papers with the precision and method which old men display in tense moments such as these. He gathered them together, white paper and blue and buff, and stacked them into a neat heap on a tiny ledge to the left of his desk. Then he took his pen and wrote a few words on a printed paper before him. Another breathless pause, and he groped beneath the desk and brought out a small square of black silk and carefully laid it over his white wig. Then he spoke. James Meredith, you have been convicted after a long and patient trial of the awful crime of willful murder. With the verdict of the jury, I am in complete agreement. There is little doubt, after hearing the evidence of the unfortunate lady to whom you were engaged, and whose evidence you attempted in the most brutal manner to refute, that, instigated by your jealousy, you shot Ferdinand Bulford. The evidence of Miss Briggerland that you had threatened this poor young man, and that you left her presence in a temper, is unshaken. By a terrible coincidence, Mr. Bulford was in the street, outside your fiancé's door when you left, and maddened by your insane jealousy, you shot him dead. To suggest, as you have, through your counsel, that you called at Miss Briggerland's that night to break off your engagement, and that the interview was a mild one and unattended by recriminations is to suggest that this lady has deliberately committed perjury in order to swear away your life and when to that disgraceful charge you produce a motive namely that by your death or imprisonment miss briggerland who is your cousin would benefit to a considerable extent you merely add to your infamy nobody who saw the young girl in the box a pathetic and if I may say a beautiful figure could accept for one moment your fantastic explanation. Who killed Ferdinand Bulford? A man without an enemy in the world. That tragedy cannot be explained away. It now only remains for me to pass the sentence which the law imposes. The jury's recommendation to mercy will be forwarded to the proper quarter. He then proceeded to pass the sentence of death and the tall man in the dock listened without a muscle of his face moving. So ended the great Berkeley Street murder trial, and when a few days later it was announced that the sentence of death had been commuted to one of penal servitude for life, there were newspapers and people who hinted at mistaken leniency and suggested that James Meredith would have been hanged if he were a poor man instead of being, as he was, the master of vast wealth. "'That's that,' said Jack Glover between his teeth as he came out of court with the eminent king's counsel who had defended his friend and client. "'The little lady wins.' His companion looked sideways at him and smiled. 
"'Honestly, Glover, do you believe that poor girl could do so dastardly a thing as lie about the man she loves?' "'She loves?' repeated Jack Glover witheringly. "'I think you are prejudiced,' said the counsel, shaking his head. "'Personally, I believe that Meredith is a lunatic. I am satisfied that all he told us in, about the interview he had with the girl was born of a diseased imagination.' I was terribly impressed when I saw Jean Briggerland in the box. She, by Jove, there is the lady. They had reached the entrance of the court. A big car was standing by the curb, and one of the attendants was holding open the door for a girl dressed in black. They had a glimpse of a pale, sad face of extraordinary beauty, and then she disappeared behind the drawn blinds. The counsel drew a long sigh mad he said huskily he must be mad if ever i saw a pure soul in a woman's face it is in hers you've been in the sun sir john you're getting sentimental said jack glover brutally and the eminent lawyer choked indignantly jack glover had a trick of saying rude things to his friends even when those friends were twenty years his senior and by every rule of professional etiquette entitled to respectful treatment really said the outraged sir john there are times glover when you are insufferable by this time jack glover was swinging along the old bailey his hands in his pocket his silk hat on the back of his head he found the gray-haired senior member of the firm of rennett glover and simpson there had been no simpson in the firm for ten years on the point of going home mr rennett sat down at the side of his junior i heard the news by phone he said ellerby says there's no ground for appeal but i think the recommendation to mercy will save his life besides it is a crime of passion they don't hang for homicidal jealousy i suppose it was the girl's evidence that turned the trick jack nodded and she looked like an angel just out of the refrigerator he said despairingly ellerby did his poor best to shake her but the old fool is half in love with her i left him raving about her pure soul and her other celestial etceteras etceteras mr rennett stroked his iron-gray beard she's one he said but the other turned on him with a snarl not yet he said almost harshly she hasn't won till jimmy meredith is dead or or repeated his partner significantly that or won't come off jack he'll get a life sentence as sure as eggs is eggs i'd go a long way to help jimmy i'd risk my practice and my name jack glover looked at his partner in astonishment you all sportsmen he said admiringly i didn't know you were so fond of jimmy mr rennett got up and began pulling on his gloves he seemed a little uncomfortable at the sensation he had created his father was my first client he said apologetically one of the best fellows that ever lived he married late in life that was why he was such a crank over the question of marriage you might say that old meredith founded our firm your father and simpson and i were nearly at our last gasp when meredith gave us his business that was our turning point your father god rest him was never tired of talking about it i wonder he never told you i think he did said jack thoughtfully and you really would go a long way rennett i mean 
to help Jim Meredith? All the way, said old Rennett shortly. Jack Glover began whistling a long, lugubrious tune. I'm seeing the old boy tomorrow, he said. By the way, Rennett, did you see that a fellow had been released from prison to a nursing home for a minor operation the other day? There was a question asked in Parliament about it. Is it usual? It can be arranged, said Rennett. Why? Do you think in a few months' time we could get Jim Meredith into a nursing home for, say, an appendix operation? Has he appendicitis? asked the other in surprise. He can fake it, said Jack calmly. It's the easiest thing in the world to fake. Renette looked at the other under his heavy eyebrows. You're thinking of the or, he challenged, and Jack nodded. It can be done. If he's alive, said Rennett after a pause. He'll be alive, prophesied his partner. Now the only thing is, where shall I find the girl? End of chapter one. Chapter two. Lydia Bill gathered up the scraps of paper that littered her table, rolled them into a ball, and tossed them into the fire. There was a knock at the door, and she half turned in her chair to meet with a smile her stout landlady, who came in carrying a tray on which stood a large cup of tea and two thick and wholesome slices of bread and jam. Finished, Miss Bill? asked the landlady anxiously. For the day, yes said the girl with a nod, and stood up stretching herself stiffly. She was slender, a head taller than the dumpy Mrs. Morgan. The dark violet eyes and the delicate spiritual face she owed to her Celtic ancestors, the grace of her movements, no less than the perfect hands that rested on the drawing board, spoke eloquently of breed. "'I'd like to see it, miss, if I may,' said Mrs. Morgan, wiping her hands on her apron in anticipation. Lydia pulled open a drawer of the table and took out a large sheet of Windsor board. She had completed her pencil sketch, and Mrs. Morgan gasped appreciatively. It was a picture of a masked man holding a villainous crowd at bay at the point of a pistol. "'That's wonderful, miss,' she said in awe. "'I suppose those sorts of things happen, too?' The girl laughed as she put the drawing away. They happen in stories which I illustrate, Mrs. Morgan, she said dryly. The real brigands of life come in the shape of lawyers, clerks, with writs and summonses. It's a relief from those mad fashion plates I draw, anyway. Do you know, Mrs. Morgan, that the sight of a dressmaker's shop window makes me positively ill? Mrs. Morgan shook her head sympathetically, and Lydia changed the subject. Has anybody been this afternoon? she asked. Only the young man from Spad and Newton, replied the stout woman with a sigh. I told him you was out, but I'm a bad liar. Oh, the girl groaned. I wonder if I shall ever get to the end of those debts, she said in despair. I've enough writs in the drawer to paper the house, Mrs. Morgan. Three years ago, Lydia Beale's father had died, and she had lost the best friend and companion that any girl ever had. She knew he was in debt, but had no idea how extensively he was involved. 
A creditor had seen her the day after the funeral and had made some uncouth reference to the convenience of a death which had automatically canceled George Beale's obligations. It needed only that to spur the girl to an action which was as foolish as it was generous. She had written to all the people to whom her father owed money and had assumed full responsibility for debts amounting to hundreds of pounds. It was the Celt in her that drove her to shoulder the burden which she was ill-equipped to carry, but she had never regretted her impetuous act. There were a few creditors who, realizing what had happened, did not bother her, and there were the others. She earned a fairly good salary on the staff of the Daily Megaphone, which made a feature of fashion, but she would have had to have been the recipient of a cabinet minister's emoluments to have met the demands which flowed in upon her a month after she had accepted her father's obligations. "'Are you going out tonight, miss?' asked the woman. Lydia roused herself from her unpleasant thoughts. "'Yes, I'm making some drawings of the dresses in Curfew's new play. I'll be home somewhere around twelve. Mrs. Morgan was halfway across the room when she turned back. "'One of these days you'll get out of all your troubles, miss. You see if you don't. I'll bet you'll marry a rich young gentleman.' Lydia, sitting on the edge of the table, laughed. "'You'd lose your money, Mrs. Morgan,' she said. "'Rich young gentlemen only marry poor working girls in the kind of stories I illustrate. If I marry, it will probably be a very poor young gentleman who will become an incurable invalid and want nursing, and I shall hate him so much that I can't be happy with him, and pity him so much that I can't run away from him.' Mrs. Morgan sniffed her disagreement. "'There are things that happen,' she began. "'Not to me. Not miracles, anyway,' said Lydia, still smiling. "'And I don't know that I want to get married. I've got to pay all these bills first, and by the time they are settled, I'll be a gray-haired old lady in a mob cap.' Lydia had finished her tea and was standing somewhat scantily attired in the middle of her bedroom, preparing for her theater engagement, when Mrs. Morgan returned. "'I forgot to tell you, miss,' she said. "'There was a gentleman and a lady called.' "'A gentleman and a lady? Who were they?' "'I don't know, Miss Bill. I was lying down at the time, and the girl answered the door. I gave her strict orders to say that you were out.' Did they leave any name? No, miss. They just asked if Miss Bill lived here, and they could see her. Hmm, said Lydia with a frown. I wonder what we owe them. She dismissed the matter from her mind and thought no more of it until she stopped on her way to the theater to learn from the office by telephone the number of drawings required. The chief sub-editor answered her. And by the way, he added, there was an inquiry for you at the office today. I found a note of it on my desk when I came in tonight. Some old friends of yours who want to see you. Bran told him you were going to do a show at the Irving Theater tonight, so you'll probably see him. Who were they? she asked, puzzled. She had few friends, old or new. I haven't the foggiest idea, was the reply. At the theater, she saw nobody she knew, though she looked round interestedly, nor was she approached in any of the entracts. In the row ahead of her, and a little to her right, were two people who regarded her curiously as she entered. The man was about fifty, very dark and bald. The skin of his head was almost copper-colored, 
though he was obviously a european for the eyes which beamed benevolently upon her through powerful spectacles were blue but so light a blue that by contrast with the mahogany skin of his clean-shaven face they seemed almost white the girl who sat with him was fair and to lydia's artistic eye singularly lovely her hair was a mop of fine gold the color was natural lydia was too sophisticated to make any mistake about that her features were regular and flawless the young artist thought she had never seen so perfect a cupid mouth in her life there was something so freshly fragrantly innocent about the girl that lydia's heart went out to her and she could hardly keep her eyes on the stage the unknown seemed to take almost as much interest in her, for twice Lydia surprised her backward scrutiny. She found herself wondering who she was. The girl was beautifully dressed, and about her neck was a platinum chain that must have hung to her waist, a chain which was broken every few inches by a big emerald. It required something of an effort of concentration to bring her mind back to the stage and her work. With a book on her knee, she sketched the somewhat bizarre costumes which had aroused a mild public interest in the play, and for the moment forgot her entrancing companion. She came through the vestibule at the end of the performance, and drew her worn cloak more closely about her slender shoulders, for the night was raw, and a southwesterly wind blew the big wet snowflakes under the protecting glass awning into the lobby itself. The favored playgoers minced daintily through the slush to their waiting cars. Then taxis came into the procession of waiting vehicles. There was a banging of cab doors, a babble of orders to the scurrying attendants, until something like order was evolved from the chaos. Cab, miss? Lydia shook her head. An omnibus would take her to Fleet Street, but two had passed packed with passengers, and she was beginning to despair when a particularly handsome taxi pulled up at the curb. The driver leant over the shining apron, which partially protected him from the weather, and shouted, "'Is Miss Bill there?' The girl started in surprise, taking a step toward the cab. "'I am Miss Bill,' she said. "'Your editor has sent me for you,' the man said briskly. The editor of the megaphone had been guilty of many eccentric acts. He had expressed views on her drawing which she shivered to recall. He had aroused her in the middle of the night to sketch dresses at fancy dress balls, but never before had he done anything so human as to send a taxi for her. Nevertheless, she would not look at the gift cab too closely, and she stepped into the warm interior. The windows were veiled with the snow and the sleet which had been falling all the time she had been in the theater. She saw blurred lights flash past and realized that the taxi was going at a good pace. She rubbed the windows and tried to look out after a while. Then she endeavored to lower one, but without success. Suddenly she jumped up and tapped furiously at the window to attract the driver's attention. There was no mistaking the fact that they were crossing a bridge and it was not necessary to cross a bridge to reach Fleet Street. If the driver heard, he took no notice. The speed of the car increased. She tapped at the window again furiously. She was not afraid, but she was angry. Presently, fear came. It was when she tried to open the door and found that it was fastened from the outside that she struck a match to discover that the windows had been screwed tight.
the edge of the hole where the screw had gone in was rawly new and the screw's head was bright and shining she had no umbrella she never carried one to the theater and nothing more substantial in the shape of a weapon than a fountain pen she could smash the window with her foot she sat back in the seat and discovered that it was not so easy an operation as she had thought she hesitated even to make the attempt and then the panic sense left her and she was her own calm self again she was not being abducted these things did not happen in the twentieth century except in sensational books she frowned she had said almost the same thing to somebody that day to miss morgan who had hinted at a romantic marriage of course nothing was wrong the driver had called her by name probably the editor wanted to see her at his home he lived somewhere in south london she remembered that would explain everything and yet her instinct told her that something unusual was happening that some unpleasant experience was imminent she tried to put the thought of it out of her mind but it was too vivid too insistent again she tried the door and then conscious of a faint reflective glow on the cloth-lined roof of the cab she looked backward through the peephole she saw two great motor-car lamps within a few yards of the cab a car was following she glimpsed the outline of it as they ran past a street standard they were in one of the roads of the outer suburbs looking through the window over the driver's shoulder she saw trees on one side of the road and a long gray fence it was while she was so looking that the car behind shot suddenly past and ahead and she saw its tail lights moving away with a pang of hopelessness then before she realized what had happened the big car ahead slowed and swung sideways blocking the road and the cab came to a jerky stop that flung her against the window she saw two figures in the dim light of the taxi's headlamps heard somebody speak and the door was jerked open will you step out miss bill said a pleasant voice and though her legs seemed queerly weak she obliged the second man was standing by the side of the driver he wore a long raincoat the collar of which was turned up to the tip of his nose you may go back to your friends and tell them that miss bill is in good hands he was saying you may also burn a candle or two before your favorite saint in thanksgiving that you are alive i'll know what you're talking about said the driver sulkily i'm taking this young lady to her office since when has the daily megaphone been published in the ghastly suburbs asked the other politely he saw the girl and raised his hat come along miss beale he said i promise you a more comfortable ride even if i cannot guarantee that the end will be less startling end of chapter two